You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. Today we are starting a brand new series and I'm so excited. Uh, It's a brand new series that we have uh, creatively called Ephesians. And um, and in this series, we are taking a look at one specific book of the Bible. We're looking uh, just for the next six weeks over one book in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. And I'm so excited to make sure that you know that there's an amazing resource that is available to you throughout this entire series. And that is our team, our leadership team, created a 30-day devotional uh, that, that we created. And you can find that on the YouVersion Bible app. In fact, if you wanna pull out your phone right now and, and look at that QR code there, it'll take you right there to the Bible reading plan that we created. And I just wanna challenge you, if you've never consistently spent time reading the Bible, I wanna encourage you, this is a great way to start because every single day there'll be just a few verses from the book of Ephesians and then a custom devotional that was written by somebody on our leadership team that helps explain what you're reading there. And I just wanted to say to our leadership team uh, that helped make this possible, you guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for helping with this and creating this amazing resource for our church throughout this series. Now, let me give you a little bit of context behind this book of the Bible because Ephesians is actually one of my favorite books of the Bible. I'm telling you, if there was a MySpace for the Bible, Ephesians would be in my top eight, right there with Tom. Come on, old people. How many of you know MySpace? Okay. And it's a short book that only has six chapters and 155 verses, but it is beefy. I'm telling you, it is such, it is so rich. It is such an incredible book of the Bible. And this book of the Bible, the book of Ephesians, can really be divided into two parts. The first three chapters, Ephesians 1 through 3, is really all about understanding the gospel. It's making sure that it's laying down this very important foundational theology and doctrine all about the good news of the gospel. But then the back half of the book, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, are all about living the gospel. And it talks about how to practically live the gospel in your day-to-day life. And by the way, both of these things are very important. Like you need to be able to understand the gospel. Like, and that's something we work really hard to do around here is for you to literally understand the good news of what God has done through his son, Jesus, that you understand the significance of his life and his death and his burial and most of all his resurrection and the impact that that has on our life. But you need more than that. It's not just about knowing the gospel. You also need to live the gospel out. That's actually why we know the gospel so that it can impact our life. How many of you know that man, like the gospel is so much more than just knowing something. It's about living something. And so both are very important. Now this book of Ephesians is written by a guy named Paul. 
And Paul actually wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And Paul is known as an apostle. An apostle in the Bible is somebody who helps plant and oversee a lot of churches. The difference between a pastor and an apostle is a pastor oversees one specific church. I'm a pastor, that's what I do. But there are apostles that help start and oversee a lot of churches. And that was Paul. And Paul is writing a letter. So the book of Ephesians is a letter to one of the churches that he helped plant and oversee. And it's in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is a very large, important, diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural port city off of the Mediterranean Sea. And it is now what is known as the West Coast of modern day Turkey. And so he writes this letter to a church in that area of the world in this city. And most scholars believe that the city of Ephesus was the third most important and influential city in the Roman Empire, just behind Rome and Athens. So like Cincinnati in the United States. (laughs) You know, New York, LA, Cincinnati, just right close third. And so Ephesus was the third most important influential city. And when Paul writes this letter to this city, to this church in this city, he already has a history with them. In fact, the first time he goes there is in Acts chapter 18. You can go read it, but it says in Acts chapter 18 that he doesn't stay there for a long time. Now, two years later, In Acts chapter 19, he goes back. In fact, all of the majority of Acts chapter 19 is his second time to Ephesus. But this time the Bible says that he actually stays there between two and three years. And so over those two to three years, like God does amazing things. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, talking about that time span in that city, it says, so the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. And let me just be honest, that's something I'm praying for our city. I'm praying that the message about Jesus, the good news of the gospel, man, it spreads all across the greater Cincinnati area, but not just that it spreads, but that it has a powerful effect. And let me tell you, church, I'm also praying that we would be the answer to that prayer that God would use us in such a profound way for that to actually happen. Now, 10 years later, after this verse in 62 AD, which was about 30 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So Christianity is still very new. And so in 62 AD, 10 years after he was there for two to three years, Paul is actually sitting in a Roman prison and he writes this letter that we're about to study over the next six weeks to that group of people, that church in the city of Ephesus. And after a little greeting, and then then he goes into this really deep theology that I wanna encourage you to read sometime this week. Then he gets in verse 15 to a prayer that he prays for this group of people. And this is where we're gonna be today. And it says this in Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse 15. It says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and in your love 
for all God's people. Let's just stop right there. What a reputation for a church to have, right? Come on, can we have that type of reputation in our city that when people think about, oh, man, they go to Queen City Church. Oh, those are people that have such faith in God and love for God's people. That's a great reputation. I want our church to have that reputation. And he goes on to say, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he actually tells them what he prays for them. It says in verse 17, I keep asking. I just don't pray once. I I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart, and by the way, when he says heart here, he's not talking about the organ that's in your chest that pumps blood to your entire body. That does not have eyes. When he says that, what he's talking about is he's talking about your soul. He's talking about that, that part of you that's your mind, your will, and your emotions, what you think, what you want, and what you feel. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your soul may be enlightened, may be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So today, if you are taking notes, which I hope you are, I wanna talk for the next few minutes over this message title, The More You Know. The More You Know. How many of you, when you hear that title, you instantly think of the commercial campaign by NBC in the 90s. Come on, the more you know. Uh, we actually have a, a, little, a little quick little video that I wanna, I wanna show you to see if this takes anybody back to the 90s. Go ahead and play that. Come on, does that take anybody back here? Man, when I hear that, I instantly think of like Blossom or I think of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air giving me some life lesson to stay in school. And uh, just this, and, and NBC did this whole commercial campaign that was like, the more you know. And here in Ephesians chapter one, Paul is saying, man, there's some things, guys, I want you to know, but I want you to remember the context because this, he, he, remember he's writing to a group of people that he stayed with for two to three years. This is a group of people that he helped start this church. This is a group of people that he lived life with. And he's saying, man, I want you to know some things. And I think we can read that and we just think, oh, but let me tell you as somebody who started a church, I I can't tell you there are no words in the English language to describe how much I love you and how much I care about you, how much I think about you, how much I pray for you. And 
Like, it's like there's some things I just want you to know. And that's the tone that Paul is saying to this group of people. He's like, he's begging. He's like, I just want you to know these four things. And he starts out by saying this. I just want you to, number one, write this down if you're taking notes, know God better. He says, I pray that you know God better. We see this in verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may know him better. Here's what I want you to notice, church. Paul isn't praying for them to know about God. He's praying for them to know God. Paul isn't saying like, hey guys, I want you to know a lot of facts about God. I want you to memorize the books of the Bible. I want you to memorize the back of God's baseball card so that you can win every single Bible trivia that you ever get in. I want you to know facts about God. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to know God. And that word know in the original language is this word gnosko. And that word in the English language, it means something different than what we often think of when we think of we know something. Because that word is a close, intimate, personal, it's a relational word. It doesn't mean that you know them here. Like facts, like you go to school, like our graduates, and you learn some things and you have it in your mind. It's not saying, it doesn't mean that you know them here. It means you know them here. It means you know them in your soul. It means that there's a close, intimate relationship. Here's what Paul is saying right off the bat. He's saying that you don't have to settle for stale religion. You don't have to settle for this legalistic set of rules and regulations or for this compartmentalized hour on a Sunday morning where you go to church and you dress up in your Sunday best so that you can check off some religious box so that you feel better throughout the rest of the week. He says you can have so much more than that. You can have a real, close, intimate daily, consistent, personal, dynamic relationship with God. So look at me, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you find yourself in your spiritual journey here today or listening online, like here's what I want you to know, you can know God, like you can. You can have that type of relationship with him. You can be close to God. You can have this personal close dynamic. You can know God. Man, everything starts there. That's why Jesus in John chapter 17, verse three, he says this, this is Jesus talking. Now this is eternal life. And I'm telling you, if Jesus were saying that, I would perk up. I want that. He says, this is eternal life, colon, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Church, Jesus' definition of salvation is knowing God personally, close. And Paul says, man, I'm praying. I want you to know God like that. And then the second thing that he prays, that he wants them to know, that he wants you to know, he wants you to know, number two, your true hope. Now, this is the one that is, I cannot shake this week because when you don't have hope, I'm telling you, life is miserable. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs that hope deferred, hope gone away from you, 
that hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, if you find yourself at church right here, right now, and your hope tank is low and it's, and you don't have hope, the Bible says that your heart is sick. And so this is a big deal for you to know your true hope. Tim Keller, who actually passed away this week, and now he is worshiping Jesus in heaven. He actually wrote this. He said, we are all hope-based creatures. How we view the future is how we live in the present. Man, isn't that so true? That we are all hope-based creatures. Let me, let me prove this. Because um, at our house, my oldest son, Jordan, who's 11, every single night at dinner, he asks if he can have vanilla ice cream. Every single night. He asks every single night at dinner, can I have vanilla ice cream? And Heather and I, being the amazing, responsible parents that we are, we do not let him have his ice cream until when? Until he finishes his dinner. That's right. Which most of the time consists of chicken nuggets, apples, and spinach. Like 95% of the time, that is his dinner. And we tell him, you cannot have your vanilla ice cream until you eat all of your chicken nuggets, your apples, and your spinach. And so every night, he eats all of that other stuff so that he can eat and enjoy his vanilla ice cream. So let's make sure we're on the same page here. The vanilla ice cream is his future hope that affects and motivates his present. I'm just telling you, the bath and bed just doesn't motivate him like that. Broccoli doesn't motivate him like that. Only vanilla ice cream does. See, hope is a powerful thing. And Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter one, guys, I want you to know the hope that God has called you to have that Hebrews chapter six, verse 19 describes as a strong, unbreakable anchor holding our souls to God himself. So the question is, what is that hope? What is that? What, what's in our future that should affect how we live right now? What's our vanilla ice cream that motivates us to eat our chicken, apples, and spinach? Well, Paul writes in another one of his letters in Philippians chapter three, verse 20 to another church. He says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. In Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 14, it says, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward. In other words, we have hope to a home yet to come. Listen, everybody, here's the truth here that there's more to this life than this life. That this world, like the old song that I used to grow up singing, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That if you are a follower of Jesus, guys, you are not a citizen of earth, you are a citizen of heaven. That this isn't the best it's gonna get. Come on church, thank God that this is not the best that it's gonna get. That when we turn on the news, when we see what's happening in our world, that this isn't the best that it's going to get. And maybe you've lost sight of that. Maybe somewhere along the way, you've convinced yourself that this is actually better than heaven. Maybe it's because 
you have a wrong understanding of what heaven is actually going to be like. Maybe somehow you've convinced from watching cartoons that heaven's going to be like, you're just going to all of a sudden transform into a chubby angel wearing all white, sitting on a cloud, playing the harp and singing in a choir for eternity. And that doesn't sound like heaven at all to me. That sounds a whole lot more like hell if you're talking to me. And the Bible actually describes prophetically in the book of Revelation. And, and that's why I think it's so hard to understand sometimes because he's trying his best with human words to describe what heaven is gonna be like. And one of those is in Revelation chapter 21 in verse three and four, it says, look, it describes heaven as God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with him. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And then it says this, all these things are gone forever. So all pain, all hurt, all sickness, all cancer, all pandemics, all hurt, all disappointment, all anxiety, all depression, all racism, all division, all injustice, all these things are gone forever. Now, here's what that means for you and I right now, is that some of you right now are experiencing some of those things. But here's the good news. The good news is that if you are experiencing any of those things right now, it's not going to last forever. Like that means like right now, in the middle of any of those things that you may be experiencing, pain, death, sickness, any of those things right now, guys, you can have hope. And what I love is that Paul has such moral authority to say these things. Because in the book of Corinthians, another one of the letters that he wrote to one of the churches that he oversaw in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it actually, he lists, here are all the bad things that I've experienced so far in my life. He says this, he says, I've worked much harder been jailed more often, beaten up more times than I can count, and at death's door time after time. I've been flogged five times with the Jews' 39 lashes. By the way, Jesus, that's what he experienced before the cross. Paul suffered that bad boy five times. He says, not only that, I was beaten by Roman rods three times, pummeled with rocks once, I've been shipwrecked three times and immersed in the open seas for a night and a day. In hard traveling year in and year out, I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm and betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather. That's some bad days. I mean, I know that we've been through some stuff, but I don't think any of us have been through that resume. Listen, the same exact guy in the same exact letter, a few chapters before that in second Corinthians chapter four, listen to this, this blows my mind. He wrote this in verse 16. He says, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Listen, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, 
we fix our, guide, our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now, oh, everything that we experience, oh, that will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see, like heaven, oh, that will last forever. And here's what that means. You can have hope. Listen, church, our hope must outweigh our bad days. Our hope for the future must outweigh the reality of our present. And the truth is, no matter what happens this side of eternity, we can have the hope of heaven. And Paul says, man, I want you to know the true hope that you have. I want you to know that hope so bad. The third thing that he wants you to know is that he wants you to know God's inheritance. We see it in verse 18. He says, I pray the eyes of your heart, your soul may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Let's notice something here, church. Notice that Paul isn't talking about his inheritance. Paul isn't even talking here about your inheritance. Paul right here is talking about God's inheritance. He prays that the eyes of our soul would be opened that we would know God's inheritance. So the question is, what in the world is God's inheritance? And it says it right there in the verse, his holy people. In other words, you and I, we are God's inheritance. That when God looks at you, he says, you are my prized possession. You are my inheritance. Think about that for a moment. Think about out of all the things that God has created on planet earth. And he says, oh, you, 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 the person that, that maybe you even struggle to hear this right now. I want you to hear you are my inheritance out of all the things that I created. That's why I think in the next chapter, he says that, that we are his masterpiece. In other words, our priceless work of art. That's who you are. You are his inheritance. And by the way, this is why God sent Jesus. And this is why Jesus did what he did. This is why he paid that high price. Because you are his inheritance. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, oh, this is such amazing, powerful verse. It says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding it's shame. In other words, like it wasn't nails that held Jesus on that cross. It was joy. It was the joy of what? The joy of his inheritance. The joy of what was on the other side of that pain and agony. It was you and the fact that now we can have a relationship with you. And like, listen, God is so crazy about you that he's willing to pay the highest price of his only son just for the chance to have a relationship with you. Why? Because you are his inheritance. And Paul prays, man, I just want you to know so bad that you are God's inheritance. And the last thing he prays, so he prays those three things and he says, well, there's one more thing I can't leave out. He says, man, I want you to know the very last thing, your power in Christ He says, I want you to know your power in Christ. This is so important. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter one. 
It says, I pray that the eyes of your soul may be enlightened, that you may know. And then he lists those first two things. And he says this, I want you to know his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if, you're, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, that's my favorite way to describe it. That, that we don't follow the world, we don't follow, follow culture, we follow Jesus. That if you are a follower of Jesus, you have access to power. And what's cool is if you study the original Greek language, it doesn't say that you have a little bit of power. It says you have a whole lot of power. In fact, the Greek word, there's this word dunamis. And it's where, it's the root word where we get the English word dynamite. And he says, that's the type of power that you have access to. It's not a little bit of a power. It is dynamite power. You have that type of power. In verse 20, it actually says that it's the same exact power that raised Christ from the dead. Now, I don't have a clue how much power it took to raise somebody who was dead back to life, but I imagine that it's a lot of power. God says, you have access to that type of power. And that's power that not only saves you for eternity, but it's power that has the ability to change your life right now. It's power to change things in your life that would never be changed unless that type of power was involved. There's some things in your life that you are convinced that will never change. And it's because you've tried everything and you've tried and your willpower is not enough. Your power is not enough to change it. But God says, hey, there's some explosive dynamite power that is available to you that can change the things that you never thought could change. Like power to heal, power to set you free, power to break the chains of addiction of something that you battled your entire life, like power to restore your marriage or a broken relationship, power to lift anxiety and depression, power to remove shame that has been owning your life, power to live the life that you know that God has called you to live and do the things that you know that God has called you to do, but for whatever reason, you and your own power doesn't have enough. And he says, you have access to that type of power. Here's what's crazy. Later in the book of Ephesians, when it gets to the, not just understanding the gospel part, but the living the gospel part, I'm just telling you, prepare yourself. When we get there, it's gonna get all up in your kitchen. It's gonna challenge you. It's gonna show all these things of like, man, I don't do that very well. Like, for example, here's some things. Just listen to these. These are all things that are coming. Just get ready. It's going to be so much fun. These are things that are coming. Paul tells us to do stuff like this. Just in the book of Ephesians, live a life worthy of your calling. Always, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's faults. Make every effort to be unified. Stop telling lies. 
Oh, listen to this one. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Any. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Forgive each other. Oh, this is, this is the last part that's so hard. Forgive each other just as God forgave you. And then he just throws this in. By the way, all that's Ephesians chapter four. And then he starts Ephesians five with this. And imitate God in everything you do. When I hear that, that list of what's coming, I don't know about you, but let me tell you where my mind goes. How in the world are we to do that? Is Paul literally setting us up for failure? Is he asking us to do something that there's no way that we could possibly do it? And the answer is there's no way in your own power that you can do all those things. But the truth is there's only one way that you can actually live what he's gonna ask us to do coming up. And that's by the power of his Holy Spirit. And Paul prays, guys, I want you to know that power is so bad. So the question is, well, how do we tap into that power? How do we get that type of power? Here's the good thing. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go to church a certain amount of times. You don't have to finish your Ephesians devotional on you version. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You don't have to beg for it. You don't have to say, God, I beg, I beg, I beg. Here's the cool thing. You wanna know how to get that power? You wanna know it's only one way. It's only one way. By faith. That's it. You mean I don't gotta jump through any theological hoops? You mean I don't have to go to church a certain amount of time? You mean I don't have to clean myself up first? You mean I... I don't have to stop doing that on Saturdays. Nope. It is one way and it is by faith. By the way, almost everything in the kingdom of God is by faith. I don't know why, it's just how God rolls. That's just how he rolls. Everything is by faith. Just think about it. How do you receive salvation? By faith. How do you know that you're saved after you receive that salvation? It's by faith. You don't get mailed something, right, from God. Like, hey, guess what? You got it. There you go. How do you know? It's by faith. How do you know that God actually hears and answers your prayers? That when you spend time crying out to God, how do you know? It's by faith. How do you know that the words of this book are true? that it really is the holy word of God that's perfect and infallible and speaks to our life in every area of our life, in every season of our life. How do we know? It's by faith. How do you know that if you tithe that God can do more with 90% than you can do with 100%? It's by faith. How do you know that if you Sabbath, that God can actually do more with six days than you can do with seven? By faith. How do you know, like earlier, in Ephesians chapter one, that God is working all things for your good by faith. And how do you receive the type of power that Paul prays so desperately for you and I to have? The power of the Holy Spirit, the dunamis power, it's by faith. 
If there's anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com slash prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at Queen City People or visit queencitypeople.com.